Let us pray. Lord God, bless your word wherever it is proclaimed. Make it a word of power and peace to convert those not yet your own and to confirm those who have come to saving faith. May your word pass from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and from the lip to the life, that as you have promised, your word may achieve the purpose for which you send it. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Just for your reference, as you um, in worship, we, we try to put as many, a few prayers in the bulletin, but um, there's a lot of helpful prayers for worship in the front inside cover of the hymnal when you sit down there in the, in the pew. Um, for like when you first get into worship, before confession, before and after communion, and for blessing on the word. So it's, it's nice to, to kind of center yourself. And a lot of people like to pray um, before or after communion. Uh, so there's some prayers to kind of help you there. And there's, despite what you might have heard, written prayers are not bad. Um, so different church bodies have different views on this, but there's actually a helpfulness in written prayers. And in fact, when the disciples asked Jesus, hey, God, how should we pray? And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, colon, Lord's Prayer. Uh, which becomes a written prayer. So we have the, the model for what prayer should be uh, in the Lord's Prayer. And it, but what's helpful about other written prayers is that often while our, our minds wander or our minds might not think about certain things, I hadn't thought about that. Like it's, 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 it's helpful. Like even for me, when I'll go in to visit folks in the hospital, you bring, there's a special book that we have called The Pastoral Prayer Companion. This got prayers for like every issue under the sun. Because um, you never know what you're going to walk into. And by this point in my ministry, you know, you can pray for any situation. But it's kind of handy to look at those prayers, too, because sometimes you might forget, like, some of the other factors that might be tr- troubling an individual. Everything from anxiety to fears of what's going to happen to my kids if something happens to me to... Um, am I making the right ethical decision in this situation? So there's lots of different nuances to, to keep in mind. So um, I found written prayers to be helpful. We'll talk more about prayer next week when we get into the Lord's Prayer. But for today, we're continuing, our, continuing the conversation we began last, uh, last week on the, uh, the creeds. So uh, you got your hand out there. You can hopefully grab one when you walk in. Uh, and the, the, there's a variety of creeds that we use in the church. Creed simply means I believe. And uh, we use both the, um, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed more frequently in worship. Uh, the Nicene Creed is a little bit more specific on the two natures of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Nicene Creed is often said whenever the Lord's Supper is being, being celebrated. And we have the Lord's Supper here every Sunday at every service, so that's really the only creed we use. Uh, the Apostles' Creed we'll use during like midweek services, like Advent and Lent, and, um, and during like chapel services during the week. So, uh, but more importantly than the creeds themselves, so we talked enough. We talked that to death. But now the content of the creeds, and, and has we've talked about God the Father. So God, as He presents Himself to us in a mathematically illogical way, as one God yet three persons. Trying to explain this to my Annabelle, my seven-year-old is always asking questions. So, if Jesus is God, then why is he praying to God on the cross or wherever? When so I'm like, that's a good point. I don't know. That's like this is the challenge of we. This is why we. A lot of these doctrines we simply confess. We say back to God what He has said to us of Himself. Some of the key points in the. Um, in the small catechism is what we're kind of reviewing. If you want to grab your, it's supposed to be the hymnal in the Bible, but the, it's maybe easier to find in the back of the Bible. If you got a Bible in the pew in front of you, back on page 1056 in the back of the, uh, the back of your Bible. Where we've confessed in the, in, the, in the second article of the creed, I believe also in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? So that each of those, each of those articles about Jesus is, is, is very helpful and it's obviously drawn heavily from the scriptures. But I've put a few on your handout here. Um, first, that we confess him to be my Lord. He is not just a Lord, but this, this Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity. So he's, he's fully God, but also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. So we confess, we confess the virgin birth because tied up into the virgin birth of Jesus is the, the um, perfect humanity of Jesus that's not tainted by sinfulness in the way that your, your humanity and my humanity is. So it was necessary. Uh, so Jesus is eternal. That is, he had no beginning and no end. But he wasn't eternally human. So before he is incarnate, so the incarnation is a kind of big word you hear around Christmas time. In, pretty basic, means in. <laughs> and for carne, from the Latin carne, um, I, I, I think um, of the the Taco Bell carne asada burrito, which is the, with a meat burrito. Carne means meat. Carnivore. So the incarnation is Jesus, the, the, the son of God, without beginning or end, is, takes on himself meat, flesh. So he becomes human. And um, so now he continues to be human eternally uh, um, without end, but he wasn't eternal, eternally human on the front end, but the word of God that became flesh in John 1.14. Uh, it's important that he's born of the Virgin Mary, so he had to be true. He had to be fully God. Otherwise, when he died on the cross, it was just a guy dying on the cross. So a person who's dying on the cross as a penalty for their own sin they are paying the price for their own sin, but not everybody else's sin. The only way the death of Jesus merits the eternal salvation of paying the price of sin for the entire world of all times and places, it had to be God. But he couldn't actually take our place unless he was fully human. He couldn't die the death that we die. He couldn't face the temptations that we face if he wasn't also fully human. So he needed to be born, born a man without, the, without being brought down by original sin, a sin that's passed down for, through the generations. So he's born, uh, so he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. So if, sometimes you might notice like in, in worship, um, different churches practice this a little bit differently, but in the creed, creed, the creed can often become like the Lord's Prayer where you've said it so many times you can actually be thinking about your grocery list while you're saying it. Um, so sometimes there, some, one, of the, one tradition that's been long held in the church, in fact, I didn't, I didn't even know it existed and so I went to seminary. So here I am at seminary, my first time in worship and we get to the creed and we get to the um, in the Latin, the incarnatus est. Um, it was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. Everybody bows. I'm like, and I'm the only guy not bowing. What are they doing? And, and, and I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to bow. And by the time I started to bow, they were back up again. I'm like, what are you doing? And the reason why, it's, Jesus didn't say to do it, obviously, but the idea here is in reverence to when, when God becomes becomes man. We're just like re re recognizing his, his descent to our humanity, um, and it keeps us paying attention because we're listening for it, and, and we're coming back up before we get to crucified under Pontius Pilate because we don't bow to Caesar. <laughs> so we bow to Jesus in his incarnation and in, in his state of humility, and then back up. That's just our, our practice. Church, some churches do it differently. It doesn't really matter. What, what we're recognizing here is that we do worship we do worship in our bodies. 
And that's why we stand, we stand up. There's a practical reason why we stand up in church. What is it? Tell me quickly, practically. So you don't fall asleep. So like we have people sitting down for too long, they'll fall asleep or they, your legs get tired or whatever. And you stand up for too long, people start to complain. So you, know, you have this, there's a practical up and down that's happening in worship. But it's, it's actually more important than that. We're confessing with our bodies the importance of things. We stand for the gospel in, like as, a, as a clear confession uh, that, as, that these words are distinctly the words of Jesus. Now, obviously, the Old Testament's also the words of Jesus. So we could stand for everything, but we're, just, we're, we're intentionally holding the gospel to a higher, uh, with higher regard. So we'll stand for the gospel. We confess with our bodies when we do that. Right? Uh, we'll stand for prayer. The only reason why we stand for prayer is because in, in, in insanity, when they built this sanctuary, they didn't put kneelers in the pews. Look at the pews in front of you, and you see there's little holes. The pews have a place for kneelers. But wait, why don't we kneel? Why don't we kneel in worship? Why don't Lutheran churches typically kneel? It's Catholic. Who said it? Because it's Catholic, and therefore it's necessarily bad. Like, what? So this one is kneeling. Like, uniquely a Catholic practice, right? So, like, it's uh, the, the posture of kneeling. I mean, think, think, uh, think of a person being dubbed a, a knight or whatever before a king, and to, to be kneeling before the king, and they come at you with a sword, I mean, think about what that, what that signifies. When, that, when you kneel before a king, you have the posture of one who is about to be what? Beheaded. Kneeling before the guy with the sword, putting the head down. You can either cut off my head or choose not to. That's showing my allegiance to this individual. And that's the posture we have before God, recognizing that he has the power and the ability to end me. But I'm completely, I'm commending myself fully to him. That's what the posture of kneeling indicates. That's why you kneel before royalty. It's not just, a, it's not just that we, we say it, it honors them, but, but there's, a, there's a historical significance to what kneeling before someone does. It puts them in a position to be able to beat you up faster. So we're acknowledging our low state before God. So typically that's the posture in prayer, but since we don't have kneelers, we stand to, to, get, to try to show the same reverence. But um, anyway, let's see. Um, yeah. Uh, the first church that I uh, taught, taught at and played organ for, uh, but I played for a German service. And you would not believe these eight old Germans would get down on their knees on the hard floor. They would turn around in the pew and kneel, kneel. with their hands folded on the pew. Yeah. Myself, I thought, boy, and you got all these other people who complain. About <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it's hard. I mean, so now you get these practical issues that sent, and every, every congregation also has their own practice when, within the realm of what's called adiaphora. That is the things that are neither commanded nor forbidden in the scriptures. We're given a, a tremendous amount of freedom. And then because of that freedom, individual congregations kind of evolve into their own practice. And to deviate from that practice can often put attention on an individual that now cr starts to cross the line into, like, I'm trying to show off how pious I am. So in our setting, if, if everyone's standing in prayer because that's what we always do, and then a well-meaning uh, super piety, Harvey decides he wants to kneel here, everyone's gonna notice. And then the question immediately pops into all of our minds, why is he doing that? Is he showing off how pious he is? And now during prayer, all we're thinking about is that jerk Harvey and how he's so self-focused. You know what I mean? And then we're thinking, well, I shouldn't be thinking about Harvey. I should be thinking about something else. And then now the prayers are all gone and I haven't been listening to a single thing. That's the problem of like these distractions in worship. Um, like same, same with like in, in some churches where like a person will, I'm really feeling the Holy Spirit. But, and now, now all of a sudden I'm distracted by, well, why is that guy... Why, why is his hands in the air? Like, am I supposed to be doing that? But, and I'm thinking about him. It's something totally different. So, um, yeah, good. So, yeah, but it's, it's totally, it, it can be abused like all helpful practices, right? 
Uh, but it, it, kneeling has its place. So we, uh, let's see, the two natures of Christ are essential. Without the humanity of Jesus, then we've got, we've got heresies. So the early church, the main early church heresies had to do with the, whether or not Jesus was fully God or fully man or half and half, or how do we think about that relationship? So if Jesus is not fully God, but just a super God or superman, then he's not fully God, nor is he a man like us. If he's a superman, he's above, he's not, he's not like me. Like Hebrews says, he is like me in every way, but without sin. So how can he take my place if he's not like me? Um, <clears throat> so the, our salvation, the, ch- the church has always confessed that our salvation becomes at stake when Jesus is no longer man, because Jesus can't die like us if he's not man. He can't take my place. He's got to take my place. He's got to be a man. But he also has to have a, his death pay for my sins, so he's got to be God. Because I don't just deserve to die, but I deserve what? Not just temporal death, but eternal condemnation. This is why, this is maybe helpful to think through, what we usually go over during Lent. Um, the death of, when Jesus dies on the cross, the main penalty that he pays is not physical torment. But that's usually what we think because it's the only thing we can see. But if it's just that he suffered really badly and that paid for the sins of the world, I mean, he was crucified. That's really terrible. It certainly was. But lots of people were crucified. Their death didn't pay for the sins of the whole world. How did Jesus' death pay for the sins of the whole world? Because in those three hours between noon and three when the sky goes black and Jesus prays Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you, what? Forsaken me. To be forsaken by God is to have God turn his back on you, and that is hell. To be cut off from God. So Jesus suffers the penalty of hell for those three hours for us. And what's a buddy of mine, Pastor Melius in Colorado, he, he had made this astute observation that if Jesus was suffering, like if, you, if you were suffering for somebody else, but you knew that you were suffering for them, doesn't the knowledge that you're suffering for them actually give you some, like, hope? It gives you some, like, uh, it makes you feel good. There's a little bit of goodness even in your suffering because you know that you're doing it for another, right? That's why it's interesting that Jesus says, not just, God, you are forsaking me, but what? Why? What do you mean, why? Aren't you God? What do you mean, why are you forsaking me? Because, at least this, this is speculation, as he's hanging on the cross, as he's suffering the pangs of hell, the knowledge that he's doing it on your behalf would bring him enough joy, and there's no joy in hell. So a spark of joy in the midst of hell is no longer hell. So he needed to act, in order to suffer the full pain of hell, is to even have the why of his suffering removed from him. Although that was an interesting point. I mean, the scriptures don't say that definitively, but it is an interesting conclusion as to why he would say why. Um, So his death on the cross is, is actually taking our place. Uh, I got a few other verses I'll come back to on that, but just to just try to stick with my handout and the creed simultaneously here. Let's look at a, a, his name. Jesus, Jesus, means he saves. So his name is what he does. And that's consistent for God because Yahweh also means I am. So God's name is his being, is his existence. So now with Jesus, he saves. So this in- interesting thing happens in Matthew in Matthew's gospel, have you noticed that like when the angel appears, is it, to, is it to Joseph, I think, where he says his name will be Emmanuel? And okay, so then when the baby is born, you think Joseph, yeah, one job, Joseph, name the baby Emmanuel. What's he name the, what's he name the baby? Jesus. What, what happened to Emmanuel? Do you ever have that thought on Christmas Eve? 
wait a second. How did he miss that memo? Hey, one job, one job, Joseph. Well, what's helpful here is seeing the connection between Emmanuel and Jesus. Emmanuel means God with us, but God with us is bad news because we are, we are sinful and he is not. So it's like gas on fire. So for God to be with me is not good unless he's with me to Jesus me, to save me. So for G, in order for Jesus to, to be my savior, he has to be God with us. But it's also helpful to know that God is with me, um, not to judge me, but to save me. Uh, John, John's gospel refers to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Passover language of um, at the Passover when Israel is set free from bondage in Egypt and the Lamb is slain so that the angel of death passes over. So that picture of death passing over us, being set free from the bondage of slavery, set free from the bondage of sin. So that's the picture. And there was always meant to be a picture of Jesus for us. So Jesus fulfilling that as the Lamb of God. Uh, Matthew 16, he is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, says Peter, uh, to be Christ, the Messiah, so the promised one of the Old Testament, the chosen one from the Old Testament, but also to be the anointed one, that is to be, to be the one set apart, to set, the one set into the office of Savior um, that, was, that was promised of old. All these diff- different titles given to Jesus. Now, the way that Jesus saves is interesting. I got a picture of Rambo on there because I'm a, a child of the 80s and a big fan of, of Rambo and, and Rocky, but this is a cool, a cool picture of, of Rambo that I found. When I think about saving someone, I think Rocky, or Rambo, sorry, I'm confusing my Stallones here. Rambo. So he comes in, this is, uh, if you know your Rambos, this is, which, which Rambo? Rambo 2, when he goes into Vietnam to save the POWs. So the POWs are there in prison. Uh, and, and America they had the special intel. They figured out these guys have been in, in this uh, POW camp in Vietnam for like years. And uh, Rambo goes in and saves them. But the way that he does it is pretty cool. Who's seen, has anybody seen Rambo 2? One? Yes. Daskus? No, Daskus? You got to get on Rambo too, man. Like to be a guy, this is like part of your man card. You have to watch. But he comes, so he comes in and he ends up getting captured and tortured. And then like he breaks out of the, he breaks out of where they're torturing him. And he like steals one of their helicopters. And he just like basically destroys the entire Vietnamese village. It was amazing. He just mows everybody down uh, in his unique Rambo awesome way. And he, and he gets all the prisoners and takes him out of there. But the key thing is that he saves through power. That's the way we think about how a person is saving in our, in our human context. Superman, Batman, their, their, unique, their uniqueness that enables them to be a superhero is that they are in fact powerful in some way. Not that in the way of Jesus, he has all the power but he doesn't use it to save. When he does use it to save, it's almost like accidental. Because remember, he's always holding back. And then finally, when he, like, when he raises Lazarus from the, even when he raises Lazarus from the dead, if you think back to your, what is that? Is that John's gospel? I'm, I'm getting my gospels confused right here. But when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he didn't do it because he was interested in raising Lazarus from the dead. Because if you remember this story, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. And then the text says, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited like three days. And then they come back with a new, oh, Lazarus has died. And then Jesus says, let's go. To which I'm like, wait a second. What? If you knew he was sick and you were going to go, why didn't you just go when he was sick? Because everybody you touch gets better. So why would you not go? He needed Lazarus to die so that, what? He could raise him from the dead so that the main thing can happen. The first time at the end of the, at the, end of the Lazarus account, 
when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it is that incident that causes the Pharisees to say, he's got to die. That's the first time they say, no, that's enough. He has to be put to death. It's no longer like we got to bring him up on charges of false teaching, but now it's, we got to figure out a way. It's better for one man to die than for all of the people, right? So at that time, from that time on, they tried to figure out a way for him to die. That's the first, that's like Monday or, uh, no, no, it's, it's like Friday or Saturday before Palm Sunday because he's on the outskirts with Mary and Martha. Um, that's where, I think it's Bethany. And then they come up into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So that's Holy Week. And during that time, the Pharisees are, are, are paying, and the, and the scribes are paying off Judas to betray him. And now they've got their plan of how they're going to kill him, right? But the way that Jesus saves is, is against the way of this world. So he comes in, he comes in the lowliness of humanity. And he, while he has all the power, he's choo- he, he uses self-chosen weakness and comes in lowliness and he dies, which is the most anticlimactic way. Like if you're watching Rambo and he comes in with his machine guns and he gets shot right away, it's like end of movie. What's the point? And here's Jesus, and he's been held up to be the savior for the whole New Testament, and all of a sudden he dies? How does that save anyone? Jesus wants to be known as a savior who saves us through weakness. He is, he is crowned king with a crown of thorns on the cross. Uh, G- Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, as it was put, no, put over his head even, right? So he's, he's saving us, not in the glory of this world, but in the weakness of suffering. And then through that, we're able to actually see more meaning in our own suffering. So if God is working the greatest of all goods through his death and suffering, then we are able to see our suffering in a similar way. And this is Romans 8. God works all things out toward the good of those who love him. So that even in, my, even in my suffering, I know that God is using it toward my good in some way. Even if it's me dying, it's him ultimately calling me to himself. So he's, through his death, he has transformed death from a thing to be feared to a thing that's simply a gateway into eternal life. He has, uh, as 1 Corinthians puts it, he's ripped the teeth out of death. Oh, death, where is your sting? So a bee without a stinger still manages to scare my daughters and my wife. I'm like standing on the porch by myself eating lunch when they're all running inside <laughs> because there's bees. If, if bees aren't going to sting you, right? It doesn't matter. They're still scary, and that's our experience of death. It's still scary. Um, and so Jesus is reminding us that, hey, I've ripped the sting out of death. When, when death stung him, it broke off the stinger. Or, or I like the picture of the wolf that bites Jesus and loses his teeth. So the, the wolf is still growling and barking, but it can, it, all, all it can do is get slobber on you and like gum at you, but it can't kill you, right? So here's just a few verses there underneath Rambo. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're actually going to come up, that, that text is coming up hopefully this Sunday in Bible class. Uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So God chooses what is foolish in the eyes of this world and the weak in the eyes of this world. So our worship experience is the same way. So he is, he is delivering the cross to us through water? Water? That's it? That's the best you can do? Can we come up with something more impressive? But no, this is God choosing to work in the same lowliness. The spoken word... Bread and wine, and, and at that kind of crummy, crummy bread and wine, this is what he chooses to work through. Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, born of the Virgin Mary, found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Hebrews 4, we have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted like we are in every way and yet without sin. So that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. And a couple of terms that get thrown around. Uh, Luther was 
I mean, it's called, the, the theologians call it substitutionary atonement, but Luther referred to it as the, the blessed exchange, or the German is, can be translated, the sweet swap. That is, he takes all of your bad and gives you all of his good. And it's such a simple concept. And yet, it was mind-blowing at the time of the Reformation. And to be fair, it's still mind-blowing to us in our sinful flesh that God would deign to take all of our sin upon himself and to fill us up with his holiness so that on the last day for the final judgment, that's number eight, I'll skip ahead there, which, when you got the sheep and the goats, which is actually the only stained glass window that the people in church can see. <laughs> the rest of them are for me to watch like during my sermon. But the stained glass window behind the, behind the altar that you can only see if you're sitting like in the middle, you'll notice the sheep on the left looking up at Jesus and the goats on the right looking everywhere else but Jesus. The sheep on the last day, they stand before, they stand before God in the judgment and they say, what, when did we do all these good things for you? Because he says, enter into my kingdom. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you helped me, all this. When did we do this? And he says, enter into my kingdom. Into the goats, he says, enter into everlasting torment. Because when I was sick, you didn't visit me and so forth. And they said, when did we not do these things? We've been doing good stuff all the time. So if you want to cling to your own good works, he'll let you. But they're like cinder blocks in the ocean. They're just they're going to bring you down. So God's taking even our good works and filling them up with his holiness. So that on the last day, we stand before God for judgment with our, with our pockets full, not of our own good works, but of his. He's emptied our pockets, filled them up with his goodness, and covered us in his holiness. That Hence the, the picture in Revelation 7 is the white robes of the saints in heaven. They've been covered in his, his holiness. Um, so the, uh, that's, that's the blessed exchange. Objective justification is the picture of a courtroom scene. If you heard that phrase, objective justification, all of us like to be justified. That's why when you do something naughty, you, you, call, you phone a friend and you ask them to tell you that you did the right thing. When you said that mean thing or you did that hurtful thing or um, when there's like an adultery, when there's an affair, it's because he didn't love you or she didn't love you or they weren't satisfying your desire or whatever the thing is, or it was, it was right to steal because ultimately you've been getting ripped off. Um, you needed to say that mean thing because they had it coming, they're a jerk. So you're, we go to our friends to, to give us justification for our, for our behavior. We want to be told that it's okay. We, we, we seek that. We, in fact, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's the telltale heart, where he's got that heart that's beating in the ground, if you're, if you're familiar with that poem, or short story, whatever it is, that, that that's the conscience is, has this thing where we, it has to, I gotta tell somebody, and which is what ends up happening at the end of that story, he, like he turns himself in from the murder. He, I need to tell somebody to either suffer the consequences or, or to, for somebody to tell me that it's okay, so I can make this bad, go away. I want to make the wrong right. And in many cases, the wrong only gets right by me being punished. But in that way, my conscience can be at ease. That's what, that's what they're after. That's what the, he's after in the telltale heart. Um, so people go to their bartender or their hairdresser or their friend or somebody to, to, to confess their sins to so they can be told that you did the right thing. It's okay. And the Lord wants to justify us in a better way, not to, not by telling us that it's okay, you did the right thing, but by saying, I have taken your sin upon, it is okay because I've taken your sin upon myself. So the picture is you are on trial for sins. And before you, as you're sitting there in the, in the courtroom, I always think of like, you know, uh, what's the Tom Cruise movie? You can't handle the truth, courtroom scene. And he's sitting there and like before you, before you is, is stacked up all of your sin, all the accusations of your sin. Satan means accuser. So you've got all your sins piled up in front of you that you're being accused for by the prosecuting attorney, the devil over here. And the problem, the, the bigger problem for you isn't just that you're being accused of your sin, but what? You're actually, you're actually guilty of it. 
and you know that you did it and it's haunting you, haunting your conscience. And so um, you're, you're standing there before the judge and here comes the verdict that you are guilty. And as the, as the you're guilty for your sin and, here's, and as the punishment is, is coming down for you, Jesus becomes your defense attorney, steps in front of you and says, uh, I'm gonna take the punishment for this. So the guilt for the sin that's, that the devil is rightfully accusing you for, he's got all the evidence piled up. Uh, that's all taken by Jesus. And then the punishment is taken by Jesus. And that's when, so the judge looks at the Jesus, the Jesus. <laughs> I just quoted the big Lebowski there. That's like three movie references in one Bible study. You guys are getting more than you paid for. Is that? The Greek, that's right. So, so he, puts, he points at Jesus and says, guilty. And he points at you and says, innocent. Now, think of your American court experience. Not necessarily your being in court, but like, what does our law, our law say? When the judge says you are innocent, you are? You're free. And can you be tried for the same crime twice? No. But you're sitting there saying, innocent? Not guilty, uh, but I, I know I did all these things. I know I did all these things. But when the judge says not guilty, what happens is you're objectively declared just. You're declared to be righteous. But you're saying my, my subjective experience is that I know that I'm guilty. But objective justification is that he is declaring you to be righteous on account of Christ. That's the language of objective justification. Uh, that's him. He's redeemed me, bought me back as a lost and condemned person. He purchased and won me from all sins, death, and the power of the devil, not with gold or silver or Bitcoin or whatever the most expensive thing. I mean, for, for in Luther's time, gold or silver is the most the, the most valuable thing he could think of, but he bought me with his holy precious blood, which is the most valuable thing in his innocent suffering and death, that I, belong, that I would belong to him, that I'd be his own and live under him in his kingdom. So my life is now, I belong to him and I, and I live in his kingdom. And to live in his kingdom is pretty sweet. So if, if you have a king, if you have a king, it's terrible. Like if you live in North Korea, it's not so good for you. But if you, if you actually have a king who is good and just and can provide for you, to be under the king is, is good. It, with the king, there is protection. With the king, there is provision. So to live in his kingdom is to be cared for. And then you spend, my life, you spend your life serving him in everlasting righteousness because he's given it to you, innocence because he's made you that way, and blessedness. Just as he has risen from the dead and lives to reigns, to all eternity. There's one note I want to point out, your number six in your handout. In the creed, we say that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why is Pontius Pilate making it into the creed? Historical reference. So it, it is what distinguishes the Christian faith from the entrance, the, the beginning lines of Star Wars, or every fairy tale you've ever heard, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Where is that and when is that? Specifically, where and when is that? Is it future? Is it past? When is Star Wars? I don't know. How about Cinderella? Once upon a time in a land far, far away. Where is that? When is that? It's not claiming to be true. That's not its point. The fairy tale is trying to teach some kind of virtue or moral truth or just entertain. Same with Star Wars. It's just trying to entertain. It's not claiming to be true. But when Star Wars says, in 1946 in Houston, Texas, on Main Street, this event occurred, well, that's easy for us to very quickly determine whether or not Star Wars is making up this thing or if it's just a fairy tale when it claims to be in a particular place. That's why Superman, while, while Metropolis actually exists apparently, in, is it, Metropolis, isn't that a town in Illinois? Indiana. Is it Indiana? No, it's in Illinois. It's in Illinois? 
I think I met somebody from Metropolis the other day. That's why it's on my mind. But um, it doesn't claim to be Metropolis, Illinois, in the Superman stuff. It's metro, Metropolis. Just we think metropolitan big city. It just it stand. It's representing all big cities, any any time. But it's not claiming to be in 1956 in Metropolis, Illinois. Because then you go down there and you start asking around, is there a guy here who can fly? Have you seen a guy flying around here? And then they say, no, no one's ever seen that. So what's helpful about Pontius Pilate is it grounds the incarnation of Jesus in a specific time and place, which, which pulls Jesus out of the realm of Santa Claus, fairy tales, to a, to a um, verifiable fact. So now a person is able to say, well, when was Jesus, when was Pontius Pilate? Where was Pontius Pilate? So you can actually go look at history or at the time of, at the time of Jesus, when the gospels, remember the gospels were going around easily at a time when Christians were all over the place. So it wasn't like the gospels didn't, weren't getting circulated until the 500s AD, right? So Paul's Paul's letters are, are the first to come. We get, I think, Matthew's around 60 AD, when the earliest, at least the earliest manuscripts we have of that, or somewhere 50 or 60 AD. So these references to Pontius Pilate are, are verifiable within the time of all these people. So you could have gone to, let's say, my favorite, Bethlehem, and walked around and said, hey, are there any shepherds around here? Why would Luke have recorded Bethlehem, shepherds, angels. There's got to be. It's a small town. There's not that many shepherds in Bethlehem, especially back then. So with these facts, now I've got Luke's gospel in my hand, and let's say 70 AD, I'm able to go to Bethlehem and start asking around, you guys, anybody know any shepherds? And maybe in some ways, similar to our farming community, how do I find a shepherd? I find, in, I find the sheep and I find a shepherd who's like in his 20s. How, I know that his grandpa was a shepherd when Jesus was born. So hey, did your grandpa ever tell you anything interesting happened to him? Like, I don't know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Oh yeah, he'd always talk about this one night he was out guarding his flocks by night and angels. We always thought it was crazy. But then these other guys were also there. So these, this, that's the, that's the, all these verifiable things that are in the scriptures pull it out of the realm of fairy tale and into this verifiable realm of truth. And that's why Christianity is unique and it's, it's asking to be refuted. It's, it's begging, it's not asking you to blindly believe it. Whereas some faiths would do that. Well, just Mormon, have you ever talked to a Mormon? You gotta have the burning in the bosom. You just gotta try on the pants and see if they fit. You tell you what, you be Mormon for a year and then we'll come back and talk. Wait a second, hold on. But, like, what about the, the reliability of the Book of Mormon and all the corruption surrounding, uh, I, well, let's not talk about that. You just gotta believe it. You just gotta believe it. I'm not gonna ever tell you that about the Bible. That's what's so nice about the Bible. The Bible doesn't ask you, doesn't say you just gotta believe it. It's not blind in that way. The Bible is actually reliable for a variety of reasons. And the most convincing for me is if we were, the exercise I take my, my youth through is if we wanted to fabricate a religion, we'll call it the religion of, of uh, Cameron. Cameron, can you be our, our Messiah and our, and our artificial religion? And there, so, but in order to pull this off, we, we are going to agree that we saw Cameron do a bunch of miracles, and then we saw him die, and we saw him rise, and then we're going to, but we're going to, Cameron can't be around, because he could be questioned about this, and he, he could be asked to perform the miracles that we're saying that he can do. So he's inconvenient to have around, so we either have to actually kill him and get rid of the body, sorry Cameron, or... <laughs> Or we say, let's send him to Fiji, change his identity and say, we're gonna fund your eternal retirement in Fiji, right? Uh, in order to fund it, we, having fabricated this religion, we just need to go around and start telling people they need to believe in the, in the religion of the Cameron. 
Why? Because this book that Cameron gave us says you have to believe in the religion of the Cameron. And if you don't believe it, you go to hell. If you believe it, you go to heaven. But why should I believe it? Because we saw Cameron do these things. And, and, and that verified for us as eyewitnesses that Cameron is, is God. So far, there's a lot of parallels with Christianity perhaps. And then someone comes up to me with a knife, or more importantly, to my daughters, puts a knife to their throat and says, admit that this thing was a hoax. Now, why would I, why would I go along, at that point, why would I go along with this religion, or this lie? So I, I know it's a lie, you all know it's a lie. Think about, remember, you're, you're complicit in this with me. The same question is gonna to come to you and your children. Uh, why, am, why, am I going to, why am I going to stand by and agree that this thing is legit? Because all, me willing to martyr my children on behalf of this just sends more money to Cameron and Fiji. I'm not going to let my kids die for that. I know it's a lie. So as soon as the knives come out, I'm saying, no, 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 no. It's not worth dying over. Because the money is, in, even, is irrelevant at that point. So in the first, the first century of Christianity, you have the, especially the eyewitnesses. Luke recounts how he appeared to over 500. Um, after his resurrection, you have all these eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus who are willing to die, not because someone else told them that Jesus lives, but because they saw it with their own eyes. And so at that point, when the knives come out, you can say, you can kill me. I've seen what Jesus can do. I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm willing to die for that. That's a different kind of martyrdom than the guys crashing their plane into the Twin Towers. They're dying with a belief in what the Quran says, but they didn't actually see Muhammad do any miracles to verify it. So the death of the Muslims with the Twin Towers would be equivalent to you and I being martyred for the faith, us being being faithful to the scriptures and suffering whatever consequences comes, but that doesn't bring any verifiability to the Bible. The verifiability of the Bible comes up when you have all these people being willing to die because they said, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. And when their family is killed, they say, I guess you can kill my kids if you want, it's terrible, um, but I'm gonna see them again. We're gonna be just fine. You're willing to die for that but not for the religion of Cameron, right? There's no incentive. Now, some might argue, well, when the disciples died, I mean, surely their families were taken care of financially. Like what happened at the end of Godfather 2, man, so many movie references today. Remember the guy like cuts his wrist and, the, and the, whenever the Godfather pulls him aside and says, he told him a story about in, in Rome, how when people had betrayed the Caesar, they were given the opportunity to, to kill themselves. To, have their, to restore their honor. And when they killed themselves, then their families would be taken care of. But if they didn't kill themselves, their family would be massacred. And that was the message that the Godfather sent to this one guy who was about to give testimony before the, the courts or something. He ended up killing himself so that his family would be taken care of. So maybe that's what the disciples were doing in the New Testament. Maybe they were, they were allowing themselves to die so that Cameron, could send more money to the families and the whole church bureaucracy would have all this money. That's not what happened. The, the families of the first wave disciples were all killed. The, all the money, the big money corruption in the church didn't come until like a thousand years later. What we know is like the St. Peter and St. Paul or the, these big cathedrals in Europe, like that's a thousand years later, 1500 years later. So that's, we can't, we can't, we can't confuse that with what's happening in the early church, see? So I, I'm very passionate about, that's, that's getting into what's called apologetics, that is making a defense for the hope that we have within us. So like my, we don't say, I just believe the Bible is true because I believe the Bible is true. That's called fideism, that's faith in my own faith. I don't believe the Bible is true because I believe the Bible is true. I believe the Bible is true because it's a historical document that's reliable. And there's other non-biblical sources that are actually attesting to the fact that all these people were walking around claiming to have seen Jesus and were willing to die for it. That's objectively, historically true. 
it's still an article of faith for me to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is my Lord. So for me to actually make that confession my own, that's where faith comes in. But what's helpful is we've got plenty of historical credibility to Jesus actually having existed and people saw him die and people claim to have seen him rise. Uh, that he, then, he, then he ascends into heaven. So he rose from the dead and his resurrection, we see a glimpse of our own resurrection and his resurrection is the verifiability of, of all of his claims. If he just died, then we don't know. I mean, his death, he could have, he could have still paid for the sins of the world and stayed dead, but it was, it was the resurrection from the dead proves that everything he said was true for us. He ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God so that when he ascends into heaven, he ceases to be just in one place and becomes, becomes present when and where he wants to be present. So now he makes himself present through the word and the sacraments versus just in his body. Think Luke 24, when, when Jesus has appears to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he breaks bread with them. They say, they say, Jesus, abide with us, stay with us. That's where our hymn, Abide With Me, comes from, that text. So they invite Jesus in. He gives thanks. He breaks bread. And then he disappeared from their sight. And I, and I always picture the bread just kind of falling on the table, and he just vanishes. And, then, and that's when the lights go off. The disciples recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread, and they sprint back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. Jesus wants to be known in the breaking of the bread. That's how he makes himself present to us. So he ascends into heaven to make himself present for us everywhere. For you Star Wars fans, this is what happens to Obi-Wan Kenobi is cut in half, and he makes himself omnipresent. Not quite the same way. Uh, and then you have the, uh, the final judgment. It will come on the last day to judge the living and the dead. So the last day is a, is a scare. The scriptures, in fact, this, this at the time of the year in the church, starting mid-November, we have like three weeks in a row of the judgment text. And it's scary in time stuff if it's portrayed in such a way that I'm not covered in Jesus. But the best text is, I think, one, there's, a, there's one in Luke, there's one in Matthew that both say when Jesus comes, there's all these crazy things happening. But then it says... Lift up your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. So like all these scary things are happening, that's just, that's, that's the picture of you being inside of a castle that's being bombarded with missiles. Um, and it's scary for you, unless you realize that that's my army coming to save me. I'm, and I'm in prison in the, in the dungeon of this castle. And the castle is shaking, that's, that's dad coming to break me out of here. That's a great sound. That's us. As we see the world getting worse and worse and worse, these are the pangs of the end times drawing near, but that doesn't cause us fear because our redemption is drawing near. That's, uh, that's the second article of the creed. Any questions there on Jesus? We've got like five minutes to, to start the Holy Spirit. Yes, ma'am. Descended into hell. Yeah, so there's like there's different perspectives on, on that. Um, so one would be the universalists who who say that there is no hell, because how could a loving God punish someone eternally, right? So they actually deny hell's existence, which which is how could you do that without ignoring half the words of Jesus? Well, that's what these church bodies were doing. They're ignoring half the words of Jesus. That's why they end up with some of the people, like lesbian pastors. You have to, you have to ignore the scriptures in those situations. The other is, look, why would Jesus go to hell? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. There's one key verse in 1 Peter that where he, he goes and he, he preaches to, after his resurrection, after he rises from the dead, he preaches to the souls in prison. Specifically, it's like, it's 1 Peter 3. Um, to, those, to those, basically all those who had died uh, outside of the faith. Theologically, this is an important point to make. Jesus does not go to hell to suffer. Often people think that way. So he died on the cross. Then he, when he descended into hell, he descended into hell for me. That's not what he's doing. 
Because when he's on the cross, what does he say? It is finished means finished. So when he was going to hell, I mean, pardon the expression, but one of my, one of my favorite professors at, at seminary used to say that Jesus went to hell to give the devil the finger. <laughs> so that he's going to rub, it, to rub it in the face of the devil. He's proclaiming his victory over sin, death, and the devil to the devil himself. That's why he's there. Um, but he's not there to suffer. That's what's happening on Saturday, on Holy Saturday. So he, he raises, he's raised from the dead somewhere in there. We don't know the timing, but at some point he raises from the dead and his body descends into hell in his body, raises from the dead, and then he exits the tomb without moving a stone. Because remember on Easter morning, the angel moves the stone and he's not in there. He didn't need to, he's walking through doors now. After his resurrection, Jesus is, he's not bound, he's not as limited to his physical um, manifestation. Yeah, so I, I think a combination of not, because hell is offensive and just not knowing, not knowing how to deal with that theologically. Many people are like, why would Jesus be in hell? Does it make any sense? Especially if there's not a hell. Um, some people like um, Greg, I think it's Greg Kogel, who wrote Tactics. Uh, have you heard of annihilationism? So it's different. Universalism is the teaching that there's no hell and that everyone goes to heaven. Everyone, everyone is saved. And now religion is just a matter of figuring out how to get through this, this tumultuous life. Uh, annihilationism is that after I die, if I die outside of faith, I'm simply evapor- I'm, uh, va- vaporized. So that my punishment for my sin is not eternal. And that would be, honestly, that would be a better solution that would, that would comport better with my interpretation of how a loving God should handle this, this matter. Because it seems unjust to punish sin eternally. But it's not up to me. The scriptures say what they say about hell. And they say what they say about hell not to, not to scare me into heaven, but as a statement of reality of what is actually there. Because hell was not created for you. It wasn't created for humans at all. It's created for the devil and his demons. That's what Jesus himself says. Hell was created for the devil and his demons. And if you want to go there, he will let you. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a, I think it's, uh, what's his, what's his, um, what's the, I forget the, which, which book it is where he's talking about, there's another problem of pain. Um, sorry, I'm blanking on which, which text it is. But he describes hell as like, the situation where people who are there, like by their own choice. Yes. And they, so they, they stay in hell. It's like hell is locked. Hell is locked from the inside. It's like they want to be. It's like it's, they, even with this potential for joy of heaven, if they're presented with a, a chance to go to heaven, they still don't want it because of what, how addicted they are to this self, selfish, self-centered religion. So we, hell is pictured as burning and fire and eternal, like, and, and that's fine because I think it's because we can't comprehend anything worse. Same with the cross. The cross is the, is, manifesting for us what God is doing on the spiritual plane, how he's suffering hell, because I can't actually comprehend what that would be like. What, what is it like to be forsaken by God, to have God turn his back on you? Well, it's worse than crucifixion. It's worse than suffering in fire eternally. That's what, that's what the wrath of God ultimately is like, but I can't picture that. And thankfully, I'll never have to. I never will have to know what it's like to be forsaken by God because Jesus put his name on me and says, I will be with you always. So it means forsaken never, right? Uh, And yet we have these clear pictures of hell that are unfortunately unfortunately, uh, there and it's tragic, but we don't get people into heaven by telling them about hell, but by proclaiming the gospel. And the hell is simply simply there. Now, next we're done. Um, next, next week, we're like, we're, we're, we're like, I think we have two weeks left or three weeks, three weeks left maybe. Um, so we'll hit the sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit and the Lord's Prayer next week. Um, we've been covering, 
We've been covering um, Lord's Supper, baptism, kind of along the way. I spent a couple weeks in, in adult Bible class talking about Lord's Supper, so I won't spend too much time on that, but our, our final classes will be reserved for mostly Lord's Supper stuff, and then also answering any general questions you guys might have. So if you've got further questions, please let me know. And, let's, uh, and also be sure to um, RSVP for wine and cheese to Beth's. So we, we're, we're sure to order enough pizza. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What was the name of the uh, Lewis book?